0: Man, Michael and Christy has really made this easy for me. I feel confirmed in my spirit in some of the things I'll, I'll talk about this morning. But before I do that, what I would like to do, I would like to ask any person in this church that's served in the, any branch of the United States military, if you would stand. Please. And remain standing. If you, are the, a, uh, if you have a son or a daughter in the, currently in the United States military, if you would stand or if you are the spouse of someone who served in the United States military if you'd stand I want to say to you I remember when Tammy's dad passed away he was a veteran and I'll never forget this sitting at that grave and they had two sharp-looking military men and they walked up and they handed a nicely folded flag and they put it in and it was very emotional and they put it in Tammy's hand cuz she was you know the surviving oldest daughter and I'll say to you what they said to her. On behalf of a grateful nation, thank you. God bless you. In Isaiah 2-4, let this encourage you. There's going to come a day I'm going to talk in a minute about God's kingdom. Last week I talked about the earthly kingdom. I'm going to talk about God's kingdom this week. But there's coming a day when we won't have to worry about war anymore. Isaiah 2.4 says that he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That day is coming. But until that day... I thank God that we got men and women who will go put a uniform on and go stand in harm's way so that I can stand here and do this and live in freedom. So God bless you and thank you. Last week, uh, if you st- how many of you still have your outline? Who needs an outline? Let me ask that. If you need an outline, if you were not here last Sunday, you need an outline, please raise your hand. I'm going to finish up last week's message. So if you don't have it, you can get one. If you have it, pull your outline out from last week. And the title of the message is Living in Two Worlds. Last week I covered living, what it meant to live in the, in, under the human government. And so what I want to do is I want to recap last week's message in case you won't hear so I can bring you up to where we are this week. And the text came out of Matthew twenty-two, fifteen, 15 through 22. It's a very familiar passage of scripture. Oftentimes people use it. To, to show that we indeed do have to pay our taxes. Yes, we have to pay our taxes and that's confirmed in other places in God's word. But it's the story of the Pharisees and the Herodians, they come to Jesus and they want to trick him. And it's a very, very uh, hotbed of political and religious issues, not unlike today. Jesus has come into Jerusalem for Passover. There would have been a lot of Jews there to celebrate Passover, and as a result the Roman government would have had a lot of soldiers there, including Pontius Pilate himself would have likely been there. Because the Jews felt oppressed by the Romans, they didn't feel like they could adequately live out their faith, they didn't feel like they should be under Roman oppression, they certainly did not like paying the temple tax, and as I look at our culture today, many of us as a Christian faith, sometimes we feel like our our faith sometimes is under attack by the government. I'll show you some real life examples, some recent real life examples of that momentarily. So it was very similar circumstance, but it was a hotbed. And it had been thousands of people in Jerusalem. Well, the Herodians and the Pharisees, the Pharisees being the religious group that was really, really uh, in charge of the temple tax. Um, they were the ones that seen as the religious lo- uh, leaders. And then the Herodians, they also were Jews, but they were sympathetic to the Roman government. So typically, those two groups didn't get along at all. But in this case, they did. They wanted to come and trick Jesus, so they come to him. And they asked him, they said, they said teacher, should we pay uh, tax to Caesar? And Jesus asked him a question, and that question that he asked them wouldn't mean a whole lot to us today, but to a first century Jew, it would have meant a whole lot. Because Jesus said, show me the temple tax. He didn't have one on him, so he had to ask them to show him one. And they pulled out a denarii, would have been a day's wage, and he asked him a question, and he said, whose image and inscription is on it. Now that doesn't mean a whole lot to you maybe, but to a first century Jew who was very well versed in the Torah, particularly the Ten Commandments, the word image and inscription would have immediately pricked their hearts because they would have immediately gone to the second commandment where it said you shouldn't have any graven image in heaven above or earth below. They didn't like the fact that they had to carry something around with an image on it. And an inscription would have all but said that Caesar was deity. So here they are, Jesus in essence is saying, you know, why are you trying to trick me with this? You're the one holding something with an image on it. You're the one holding something with an inscription on it that says that Caesar is almost royalty. And so he asked him, he said, whose image is on it? And he said, well, it's, it's Caesar's image. And then he said this, he said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But he didn't stop there. He said, give unto God. is God's and so in essence Jesus said hey there's two worlds out here you're going to move within two realms you're going to move and function in this natural world and we do but you're also going to move if you're one of mine and function in this kingdom that I'm setting up and we move and flow within the two of them and in many ways they're mutually exclusive but depending on how much time we spend in one is going to have a great impact on how what kind of impact we have in the other Particularly if, you don't, if you're spending all your time and all your concerns about what's going on in the earthly kingdom and you're not spending any time in the, king, in the king, kingly kingdom, you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle. And last week I talked about the human kingdom. And we talked about some of the characteristics of human government. It is set in place and given authority by God. I, said, I, ta- I challenged you, church, last week to vote. I hope you did. If your candidate won, great. If your candidate lost, that's fine too. Because Jesus is still king of, king of the of his kingdom. That's never going to end. But if, you, if you'll take 13.1, and if you see these people get all bent out of shape about these debates in the political world, and you take Romans 13.1, and you understand that whoever is set now in a particular seat, they were set there by God, and they were given their authority by God. And he's going to use them. Their, their heart is in his hand. They, they don't even know it many times. But it's there. The Bible says so. And he's going to move that heart as he sees fit but it's set in plate and given authority by God, but it is as fallen. We'll still live in a fallen world, and the government we're under is fallen. Even if everybody in our government was saved and following the Lord, there would still be problems because we're still fallen and we still function in our flesh. It is passing away. This government, this world, this kingdom is passing away. It has borders. Spent a little time on that last week. Wasn't meant to be a political statement, But governments are set in and they're set within the borders, and they and their governments are responsible to their people. How about our responsibility as Christians to this human government? If you weren't here last week, read, take this outline home, read Romans 13, 1 through 7. One of the best passages of scripture on our responsibility to human government. We should be law-abiding. We should pay our taxes. I know that's a dagger in the heart, but we should pay our taxes. We should be honest. And we certainly should, there's lots of scripture about us praying for our leaders and our nation. I thank God we live in a nation where we can be critical of our leaders. We can, we can stand up and criticize our leaders and don't have to worry about the government coming and arresting us. But as much as we criticize, we should be more willing to pray just that much or even more. And then lastly, we should influence for righteousness. I think we should, I think there's too many Christians that say, oh well, God's got this all under control anyway, why should I even get involved He's sovereign, he's he's providential, and all that's true, but I don't see any biblical mandate for that. I think we should get out and influence our culture for righteousness, for the candidates that we believe stand for righteousness, for issues, and for a biblical worldview. And so that brings us to today, the characteristics of the kingdom of God. So if you look at your outline at number three, first, it's not of this world. In John eighteen thirty six, this was Pilate speaking to Jesus. Jesus is on trial here. He asked him. He said, "Are you are you King of the Jews?" And Pilate asked him. He said, "Are you asking me that, or did somebody else tell you to, tell you to ask that?" And then he told him this. He said, "My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not." From here. the earthly kingdom is not of this world. See the whole time he was here they were always trying to pull him into the politics. they were trying, more concerned about what they could do he could do for them right now but Jesus resisted that every time because that was what he, that's not what he came to do. and I understand that if I was a first century Jew and I was under a Roman impression and I'd seen the miracles this man had done, and I knew he was, he was the Messiah. I thought he was the Messiah. I think, great. He's here to take me out of this. We always go right to our temporal needs in our society. We do. God, what can you do for me now? I'm sick. I need healing. I need a job. That's where we start. And that's what they wanted from Jesus. Help me in my situation right now. But that's not what he came to do. He came to deal with a much bigger problem. He came to seek and save that which was lost. And so that, and that kingdom is going to last forever. Whatever situation those first century Jews on were in and whatever situation you're in today, and, and we believe God delivers. We do. But we also sometimes believe He doesn't in that situation. But I'll tell you what I know He does do. He saves. He saves eternally. And there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And I tell you, in light of eternity, our temporary affliction sometime, that's what we have. If we keep those things into perspective... And that's what Jesus came to do, was to build his kingdom. Next is eternal. Look at Luke 1, 32 through 33. This was the angel of the Lord announcing to Mary that she would give birth to the Messiah. And this is what she said. This is what the angel said. He will be great, and he will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him his throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be No end. This kingdom's passing away. We're passing through. If I live to be 100 years old, it's just a short time in light of eternity. And aren't you glad this kingdom isn't all there is? I'm glad. Look, God's been good to me. He's blessed me. I enjoy my family. I enjoy the life he's given me. I enjoyed my career. I, I love my church. But all those things are passing away that are not grounded in him, that are not part of the eternal. It's passing away but his kingdom is eternal. Next, it is international. I said that the, the human kingdom has borders. God's kingdom international. Look at Revelation 7 and 9. Now this is this is John the revelator. These are the these are the martyred saints, but this is what the kingdom of heaven will look like. And this is what Michael said this morning. He said after these things I looked and behold a great number which no one could a great multitude which no one can number. Of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. All nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. We will all, for all of us who kneel the knee of our heart to the Lord, we will rejoice before Him and it'll be, it's going to be a rainbow of colors. That's why I'm glad I, I, I'm, as I look out here I see white, I see black, I see Hispanic, there's been times we've seen had Asians here, that's what the kingdom of God looks like. That's what it looks like. And I thank God for that. It's international. That should be all the more reason that we should be concerned about missions. That's why it is so important to missions, because we want to send this gospel message out to the nations, to the places that don't have access to it like we have to it. And we should send that out. And we do here. We send missionaries to Nicaragua, we send missionaries to Africa, we have missionaries locally. But we have international missions here because the kingdom of God is international. And it's also what should concern us about persecution. Church, the Christian faith is being persecuted worldwide like it's never been persecuted before. I'm, I read today, this week about a little boy named Sharoon in Pakistan. Sharoon was a Christian in a heavy, heavy Muslim nation, a, nation, a part of the Pakistan that was not open to Christian faith. And on his first day of school, his teacher slapped him in front of the classmates. That's how he was welcomed, because he was a follower of Christ. And then sometime later, the teacher went in the room, and some of the other boys beat Sharoom, beat him so bad that he later died because he was a Christian. And that happened recently. And they didn't charge him. They said, well, there's not enough evidence to charge him, but they offered the family a little bit of money, $13,500 for the life of their son, a Christian. And what happens to us churches, American Christians, is we see that and we say, Well, you know, that's Pakistan. It's not my problem. It is my problem. That's my that was my brother. That was my sister. I'm reminded when Jesus, when Jesus was was teaching and and somebody came and said, Hey, your 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 brother, your mother and your brother are outside, they want to see you. Jesus said, Who who's my mother? Who's my brother? And he pointed to all his disciples with him. He said, These are my brothers and sisters. When we come to the Lord as the family of God, you are my brothers and sisters. Yes, I have a natural brother and I love him. And he's saved, thank goodness. So, so we're going to spend eternity in heaven. He's always going to, going to be a, a natural brother. He's going to be a spiritual brother. But these, these relationships down here are temporal if they're not grounded in the Lord. They're not eternal. I said last week, Tammy has a picture of our two little boys when they were babies, it seems like yesterday, and it has a thing that says, your children are the only possession you can take to heaven. And that's true. I want them to know, and if, you're, if you have young children today, make sure they know what the Lord has done for them. Because the only way you'll have an eternal relationship with them is if, if they've accepted Christ. And you pass that faith on to them. But I should be concerned about that, and I am. And I get some periodicals on, and some, some information on Christians who are persecuted for their faith, and I stop and I pray. And I say, God, help us. God, help us. Help me for my apathy in this. Because we're not persecuted. We're not. And I hear some people say sometimes, well, I'm, you know, I've heard people say before, well, and, and talking about America Christians, we're, we're, we're still living in a place that's very open to the gospel for the most part. But we're not persecuted. And some will say, well, you're persecuted here. Getting unfriended on Facebook is not persecution. Not being invited to a party is not persecution. What Sharon went through is persecution. Is that coming here? Slowly. And I'll share a little bit more about that as, as we go through. But let's pray. When we hear these things, let's pray for our brothers and sisters in Pakistan, North Korea, places of Africa that are really, their very lives are on the line as followers of Christ. And what it does, it makes me ask myself, what would I do? What would I do? It's an international kingdom. So what is our responsibility to this kingdom? First is to build it. We should be working to build this kingdom not just building our own. That's so much about what Sister Christy talked about. With those. When, Let me ask you a question, it's hypothetical, something for you to ponder in your heart. When's the last time you witnessed to a, a, to a friend, to a family member? Was it yesterday, last week, last month, ever? And what prevents you from doing it if you don't? Is it fear? I will tell you for someone who God has really dealt with and brought me along a little bit in this, Fear was a big part of it me. You don't want to be seen as a Jesus freak or whatever. You don't know how to. But it's like anything else. The more you do it, the better you'll get at it. And you'll find people really open to talking about their, about their situation. And you just simply share the message. You don't have to do the work. God's done the work. You pray. That's why it's so important to take those five, those five names or whatever, how many names you put on there, and pray. And pray this week and ask the Holy Spirit, God, go before me. Prepare the heart to receive what I have to say to them. And if you have not witnessed to someone, I just wonder why. You know, as I think about this, I think it's gotta be one of two reasons. One, you don't even believe this yourself because I gotta believe that if you had someone you really cared about, a loved one, a good friend, and you knew if they die, they're gonna spend eternity separated from the Lord by what I can tell about their life in a place called hell. Do I care? Do I believe that? And then next, I ask, myself, and I ask myself this, and this is where I hang out. I really don't care that much. I'm saved. My family's saved. If I, we can get apathetic. We can get apathetic. So it's a challenge to you to build the kingdom of God. And take that next week is a good start for that. You just share the message. You just share the message. But then next, after you share it, you must reflect it. Let me read 28, 19 first, Matthew 28, 19 about building it. Jesus said, Go therefore, this is one of his last words to his disciples. He said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then we should reflect it. Next, next verse, he says, Teaching them all things I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Teach them all things that I've commanded you. You go teach them the things he's commanded you, but you reflect the things that he's taught you. I heard someone say one time that the biggest evidence for atheists against Christianity is Christians who don't live their faith. Who don't live, this thing doesn't, it, it, it don't impact you. Why you say it's so real, but it doesn't have no impact on you. Why do I think it's going to have an impact on me? And unfortunately, as believers, a lot of times when we talk about that, we go straight to moral issues, things somebody's doing or not doing. And yeah, that's part of it. That's a big part of what they see. But first of all, do you, do you stand on this God that you say that you stand on? When life's crisis comes, one of the best ways to be a witness to, to people is when the crisis of life comes, but you still trust God. I've seen many of you do that. And then, actually, if you have a failure and somebody calls you on it, you say, you know, you're right, I, I was wrong. And I had to go before a graceful, a grace and a merciful God and say, God, forgive me. I was wrong in that. That's how we do that. That's how we reflect it. Next is support it. Next to support. And I, here we go. He, he, he could have gone through this whole thing and not gone into money. Okay? But the fact is there's over 2,000 verses in the Bible on money and possessions. On money and possessions. Now, in some of these poor nations, I'm sure it doesn't have the same impact on it, on it that it has on us here. One of the, in the Christian America right now, I believe one of the places that we struggle with most, the thing that, that, that we struggle in that battles for our allegiance to the Lord is our stuff. Myself included. Because we, quite frankly, we got a lot of stuff. All of us do. Most statistics say that if you make more than $2,000 a year by the, na- by the worldwide standards, you're a wealthy person. And so when we read those uh, stories in the Bible, Jesus said it would be easier for, uh, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person. We say, Whoo, that, gosh, I'm glad because I'm not rich. Well, yes, you are. By the world standards, you are. You're very, very wealthy. And there's not not many more much of a test of where the Lord is with you than what you do with the possessions that he has given you. Malachi 3.10, bring all the tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. You say, well, that's Old Testament. I don't believe in that, that tithe stuff we do here at this church. But 1 Corinthians 16 and 2, I don't have this scripture up there. It says, on the, let each person on the first day of the week lay something aside as God has prospered you. That's what it says. And as a follower of Christ, I think you should do, that's a command right into the church at Corinth. Let each person lay aside something as God has prospered you. And then 2 Corinthians 9 7, we should do that cheerfully. You shouldn't do it because I'm up here and say, oh gosh, I guess I'll give some money to the church this week because he's up there grumbling about it. We'll take it, but that's not, you're not going to get a blessing from the Lord on that. <laughs> okay, we will take it, but, but you're not—that's the not, Lord wants you to do that because you understand what he's done for you. And you've reached a place in your heart and you say, you know what, God, it's all yours. You gave it to me. You've asked me to be a good steward of it. And how now can I use it to build your kingdom? And next, stand for it. Look at 1 Corinthians 16 and 13. Paul writing to the church at Corinth said, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, and be strong. There's one uh, interpretation of that that I really love. It says, Watch, stand fast. And he says, Act like men. Now, that's not to say anything from you ladies, but act like men. It's, it's time for us as followers of Christ to know the nature and the power of the God that we serve. I think too many times we've shrunk back. We forget that, do you, believe, do you believe that this is the God that split the Red Sea? Do you believe this is the God who a little 14-year-old shepherd boy, won't big as nothing, while all the soldiers are up, they're all cowered around because this giant has come out to fight them? And this little shepherd boy walks up and he says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? He can't even put the armor on. He said, you come with a sword, but I come in the name of the Lord. And he got him some stones and he, and it knocked him down and he cut his head off. You know why? Because he stood strong. He trusted the God that he said he served. And he showed up for it. And I think we need to do that. I know there's times I need to do that. The same God that stood outside of a grave and he had to use the name Lazarus because if he had said come forth, every grave in that place would have broke open. That's the God we serve. And we need to stand and be bold in the face of a society and a culture that is changing. Not arrogant. Not not a jerk. I see a lot of Christians sometimes, they're just jerks. And then they'll talk about, well, these people don't like me and I'm persecuted. No, you're a jerk. That's why they don't like you. You've seen it. You've seen it. Don't be a jerk and then say people don't like you because you're a Christian. No, they don't like you because you're a jerk. <laughs> but there's going to come a time to stand for it, church. How many of the named Jack Phillips ring a bell in here? Anybody know who Jack Phillips is? Jack Phillips was a cake baker in Colorado. Very recent story. Jack Phillips, a Christian, saw his cake as art and just wanted to live out his faith. Un- unpersecuted. And he's a little persecuted, he was, by the government. Somebody comes in, they want him to bake a cake for a same-sex marriage. He says, I can't do that. You can buy anything in my store, but I can't do that because I'm a Christian and I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. Well, they go to the Human Relations Commission of the state of Colorado and they come after him with both barrels. Heavy fines, going to shut him down. He, he, gets an, he gets an attorney, he appeals it, it goes all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Supreme Court ruled in his favor. Now the problem is they didn't rule on the larger issue about whether or not you could be forced to violate your conscience. What they ruled in his favor over, they said, the government was so vicious against this man, it was so outside of, of what's acceptable for the way the government treated an individual that they were just wrong and we're going to rule in his favor. And so he's continuing to try to run his business, but he's since had somebody come to him and ask him to bake a blue cake and a pink cake because they're transgendering. They're just messing with the man. And he said, I, I can't do that. And then they've had a Satanist call him and say, I'm, I'm celebrating something for Satan, make me a cake. I can't do that. You, you better make some decisions, particularly if you're, if you're young here today, whether you're going to make what kind of stands you're going to make for the Lord. I said, we're not persecuted here. Okay, we're not. But you, especially if you're young, you need to decide, if the culture comes against me, what am I willing to do? Am I going to make my stand? And you need to make that decision now. I think about Daniel. You want to read uh, uh, some stories about people who were in very hostile situations to God? Read the book of Daniel. Because Daniel and his friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they trusted God and they went into Babylon, a very hostile environment to God. But before Daniel even went there, the Bible says this, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not eat the delicacies of the king. He made those decisions before he got there. And in particularly, and you can talk to Sister Christy you can talk to Brother Michael, and I can tell you for me, particularly at times if you work for the government, there's going to be some times you're going to feel some pressure. You're going to feel some push. And hopefully that won't come to you. But you've got to be ready. If God brings it to you, because if he brings you to it, he'll bring you through it. But if he brings it to you, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? So Jack Phillips said, I can't do that. Now, listen, could a Christian have baked the cake? I don't know. You figure that out. I'll let them reckon that between them and God. But he was convicted of it. And I had some friends of mine, we had these discussions. They'd say, why not not just bake the cake? I said, because, why? For him, because I think he was a bit like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And if you know that story, the king had, had created a law. And he said, look, when the flute blows, you're going to bow before me. And, and those three Hebrew boys said, uh, no, we're not. And, and, they came, and he came to him, and he said, you know, are you going to bow? I'm going to throw you in this furnace. And the Bible says this. They said, you know what? One of my translations, NIV, they said, bless you, old king. They didn't get, they didn't get angry. They didn't start raising Cain. They said, bless you, old king. They said, our God can deliver us out of your hand. But, but this is what they said. But even if, we're going to have to have some even if faith. See, we get to see the end of that story. And I'm going to tell you the end of the story. We get to see the end of it. But they didn't. They didn't know what was going to happen. They said, even if our God don't deliver us, we ain't bowing. We ain't bowing. And the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar took them and threw them in the furnace. And he walked over there and he looked in that furnace. He said, didn't we throw three people in the furnace? Yeah. Yeah. I see four people in there. And one like the Son of God. Okay? And they boys boys walked out of that furnace with not a singe on their head. They were ready. They trusted God. They made their mind up before they got there. Because here's the thing, church. I rejoice in that ending. But guess what? There's a lot of places in the Bible it didn't end that way. Every, one of the single, every single one of the disciples were martyred for their faith. I don't know what God has for you. I don't know what he has for me. But we better make, make, make it right here. Right here, right now, where are we gonna stand? Where are we gonna stand? And you might say, "Well, you know, but that's Colorado. That's out there on the left coast. I mean, the west coast." And and I know that they do things out there. But we're in the Bible Belt here. This is the old Bible Belt. That's not going to happen here. How many of you heard the name Kelvin Cochran? Does that name ring a bell? Kelvin Cochran. I followed Kelvin Cochran's case very closely because when his case started, I was still working in the police department. Kelvin Cochran was the Atlanta fire chief. Kelvin Cochran's a Christian man. He wrote a book. And its name of the book was, Who Told You You Were Naked? And it was a book for men about men's issues. And in there, and you know, before Kelvin wrote this book, and Mark, I'm going to play that video in just a minute. Before Kelvin wrote this book, he went around and he told the mayor he was writing a book, He told some people in the city council he was writing a book. And everybody's like, oh, man, get us a copy. We want to see it. Yeah, man, that's good. That's good. Well, the book came out. Well, the book has a a chapter in it about about biblical sexuality and biblical marriage. Well, when the wrong advocacy groups got behind it, the mayor changed. City council changed. Kelvin Cochran lost his job. That's been very, very recent. Mark, I'd like for you to hear it in his own words.
1: When I was growing up in Shreveport, the grown-ups asked us all the time, what do you want to be when you grow up? And my answers were always the same. I told them that I did not want to be poor because we were very poor, that I wanted a family because my dad had left my mother, and that I wanted to be a firefighter. Being one of the first African-Americans on the Shreveport Fire Department had significant challenges. There was a designated bed in the dormitory for the black firefighter. We had designated plates, forks and spoons so that no one would eat from the same plates, forks and spoons of the black firefighter. It gave me a conviction that should I ever be in a position of leadership, that I would never allow anyone to have the same experience I had as a minority. And so when I became fire chief, I instituted having no racism, sexism, territorialism, favoritism, uh, cronyism, or any ism that would interfere with a wholesome work environment for any people group within the fire department. Eight years after serving as fire chief in Shreveport, I was appointed fire chief in the city of Atlanta. President Obama was elected, and he appointed me to the highest fire official in the United States of America, the United States Fire Administrator. And I loved that job and was serving there for about 10 months. The city of Atlanta elected a new mayor and recruited me back to the city of Atlanta, and I served him for five years when I was terminated from employment. Given the efforts that uh, myself as Fire Chief of Atlanta and our group put together uh, in creating this inclusive, diverse, uh, tolerant organization, I was really surprised that writing a book for a Christian men Bible study, 162 pages encouraging men to be the husbands and fathers and leaders that God has called us to be, uh, would put me in an adverse position against the city of Atlanta because of a few pages... I wrote explaining biblical marriage and biblical sexuality. In fact, the city of Atlanta conducted an investigation and found out that I had never discriminated against anyone. However, I was terminated after my 30 day suspension in spite of that. After having lived a life of discrimination, providing leadership that eliminates discrimination was a high priority for me. So having been terminated for the perception of discrimination was very, very hurtful and really drives my passion for seeking justice and to fight for truth.
0: Chief Cochran wrote a book, that's all he did. Internal investigation showed he discriminated against nobody. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. He made a decision he was gonna make a stand. Fortunately, we got organizations now that can come along and stand beside us and stood with him. And I am glad to report that they just very recently they settled with Chief Cochran for two two million dollars. The city of Atlanta settled for him for two million dollars. That would probably discourage other people, other governments, to really take a, take a uh, look at what they're about to do. And and so, but he decided to take a stand. And he it didn't cost him his job. It cost him a career that he loved. But he made that decision up front. He made that decision going into it. And we are going to have to make our decisions to stand for the Lord when we feel his convictions in our life. Why? First, because we're ultimately accountable to God. Look at your outline. When allegiance to God's law, we have allegiance to God's law when it conflicts with man's law. In the, first, in the, in the beginning of the book of Acts, the, the Holy Ghost has been poured out, the church has just begun to form. They're out preaching in Jesus' name who Jesus is, and the Jews are still, and they're still trying to shut them down, shut them up, and they tell them, look, you can go out and do whatever you want to do, you just cannot use this man's name. And every time I hear that, I think about how similar that is to what's happening today. There's lots of lots of chaplain programs that are connected, if they're connected to the government, they'll tell them that you can pray, but you cannot use Jesus' name. That's happening again. Today, but in Acts four nineteen, when they were told that they couldn't pray in Jesus' name, they said this. Peter and John answered them and said, "Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge." So they said, "Hey, you decide whether you think we all listen to you or God." But I know what we're going to do because if you if you fast forward over to Acts five and twenty nine, they had been arrested for it again, and they said, "Didn't we tell you not to preach in this man's name? Didn't we tell you that?" And in Acts 5, 29, it says, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And there's going to come a time that maybe what the government says you have to do and what God says, they're going to collide. That's not happening a lot now, but I think it, it, unless God sends a revival, I think you're going to see more of it. So make your decisions, church. Take your stand. And remember who's on your side. Because ultimately, we will all give an account to him, I don't have Romans 14, 12, but it says we will all give an account to God. Every person who has ever walked the face of this earth will give an account to God. But we as Christians, we believe that we will give an account at the judgment seat of Christ. We will be judged for our deeds. We will be judged for the way we lived our lives and how we handle things. 2 Corinthians 5 and 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ... That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what has been good done, whether good or bad. So we're gonna appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's gonna look at what we've done for him. He's gonna look at how we've witnessed, how we handled our resources, what kind of father we were, what kind of mother we were. And you know, as I as I try to process this in my mind, and, and we did a we did a small group study on Revelation a couple years ago and, and Chris and, and, and Kristen was there and, and we talked about this a little bit. I don't know what that's exactly gonna be like. Because God's, he's, we're his children. And I don't know what that's going to be like to stand before him and, and rewards given and rewards taken away. But it says in the things good and bad. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be comp- real joyous. I don't know that it will because we're going to see where we missed opportunities. But we're also going to see some of the things that we didn't, some of the things we did we never knew would have any impact. The person that you spoke with that you thought they did not receive that at all, you might, he, the Lord himself might say, let me show you what you've done. Let me show you what what your obedience accomplished. Let me show you what the money you gave did. Now let me show you what could have happened if you'd have been obedient here and obedient there. I don't know. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of detail on that. But I just know I'm going to stand before him. And he's going to judge what I've done and how I've lived my life. But thank God that the works that I've done is not what saves me, church. Not the works you've done. It's the work that he done that saved you. The cross, the finished work of the cross is salvation. And don't let anybody tell you any different. It's the finish work of that cross of salvation. <clears throat> Lastly, Christ himself is coming back to judge the nations. He is coming back to judge the nations. We believe in a pre-tribulation rapture here. We believe that the Lord himself, there's going to be a rapture, and then there's going to be seven years of tribulation. And it's going to get real, real bad then. And then after that, that's going to be what's known as the second coming. Most people, a lot of times, get that confused. They read things about the coming of the Lord, and they think most of the time that's the rapture. The The Bible never mentions the word rapture. We believe in an instantaneous rapture. Nothing else has to happen on the um, time clock, on the prophecy time clock. That rapture could happen right now. We believe all the saints of heaven will go up into heaven. And then there will be seven years of tribulation on this, like like the world has never seen on this earth. And then Christ Himself will return, and that's the that is the setting for Matthew twenty four and thirty, where it says this. It says then the sun, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And I've always wondered about that verse, and it says that the nations will mourn. I mean, they're going to be, in, you know, when you think about someone mourning, you think about someone in deep grief, what have we done kind of thing, that type of mourning. And I wondered, I said, wonder why the nations will mourn. Keep in mind, all, it's, it's, it, Armageddon has happened, people have set themselves up then against the power of God. It, even, it just says that people won't repent. There's some things in Revelation that said angels themselves fly around and people won't repent. They're going to be so defiant and rebellious against God. Things I really can't understand right now, how you can be set yourself up that much against God. Why would they mourn when he returns? I'm gonna tell you why. Because this is what they see. Revelation nineteen eleven. Now I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse. And he who sat on that was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen and white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with an iron rod. He himself will tread the winepress and the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's why they mourn. That's why they mourn, because they see him coming, and they know that he will be judged. They will be judged by the one that they have set themselves against. You know, as I I studied this, I thought a little bit about Pontius Pilate. Pilate himself got judged Jesus. He's the one who handed him over to be crucified, even when he really didn't want him to. Even his wife came to him and said, Look, don't have anything to do with this just man. She had a dream. She's like, you know, leave him alone. But Pilate didn't have any backbone. When it came to that, he didn't want to deal with the, with the Jewish people. He said, just just take him and crucify him and do whatever you want to do with him. But, you know, historians say that after Jesus was crucified, and, of course, he's resurrected and he's gone back to heaven. Historians say of Pilate that sometime later, he, he, he ordered the slaughter of a group of Samaritans for no good reason. Pilate was a vicious man. He was a brutal man. And the Jews appealed to Caesar because they could do that. And Pilate ended up before Caesar. And, they, and, and Caesar found him wrong and charged him. And most people believe that, that, that Pilate did what many Roman governors do. In a case like that, he had been shamed. He had lost his governorship, that he committed suicide. That's what most people think that Pilate did. But what I thought as I was studying this, and you know it's interesting because I've never really thought about this as I was studying it. Just that quick, when Pilate, ever how Pilate left this earth, when he left his earth and he opened his eyes, the king of uh, earthly kingdom stood before the king of the heavenly kingdom. And he stood before Pilate, and he had to give an account to himself. But you know what? I don't know if Pilate ever had an opportunity to repent of his sins. The Bible doesn't say. But the God that we serve, if Pilate himself had knelt his knee before him and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, Jesus himself would have looked at Pontius Pilate and said, welcome in the kingdom of God. That's what he'd have done. Because when he hung on that cross, he said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I don't know what happened to Pilate. I don't. But the question is for us and for you. Which kingdom are you in all the time? Have you knelt your knee? The entrance into God's kingdom is simple. It is. We simply come to a holy God and say, God, forgive me of my sin. Have mercy on me. And we get entrance into his kingdom. And then we set on a a path to live for him. That gets a little difficult, church. I'm not going to tell you that's easy. That's difficult at times. But it's well worth it. It's well worth it. I'm going to ask Matt and the team to come forward if they would. Because I want to close with this. Jesus told those Jews when they came up to him, he said, Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and render unto God's that which is God's. And in the end, Jesus himself, he gave to Caesar the only thing Caesar could take from him. He, he, he'll, he let a, a mob come take that old body, that physical vessel, take it into custody, try him, beat him, put a crown of thorns on his head, and crucify him. He gave that old body. He said, see, you want this body? You can have it. Because the only purpose of that old body was to come down here, to live amongst his creation, to, to be tempted just like we're tempted, to, to know what it is to experience pain and hurt and loss, to make him the perfect high priest so that when he was crucified and he knew him, and he rose again, because he come out of that grave. That Brother Dan mentioned something in prayer the other night I never thought of either. He come out of The Bible said he was beaten so badly that most people wouldn't even recognize him. But when he come out of that grave, it wasn't like that. And, and when, we, when your loved one and you I come out of that grave, that old broken down body, whatever, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be a perfect body. But God allowed, it, had, allowed him to keep those. The only thing I think that was left was those marks in his hands in his side, and on his feet. Because he knew he was going to run into a guy named Thomas. And Thomas, like many of us, doubt. And he ran upon Thomas, and Thomas said, I just can't do this no more. I don't believe, I mean, he's gone. You know, we followed him. We thought things were going to turn out okay. It didn't. And the Bible said, Jesus walked right in, and he said, Thomas, Thomas, quit doubting and believe. He said, see my hands. See my feet. See, see where they pierced me. But he gave that old body up just only because he came here and did that so he could understand what I'm going through. And now that he's ascended to the Father, he sits at the right hand. And the Bible says he makes intercession for us. Because when you're tempted and you, you fall and you, you, may, you, you sin and you will, Jesus can look there and say, Father, I know what that's like. I, I experienced that temptation. And He makes that intercession for us. And He's gracious to us and we can go for Him and say, God, forgive me for what I've just done. And it's forgiveness. Yeah, He gave up that old body. But when He come up out of that grave, He created it. That kingdom was there and that kingdom's never going to pass away. And it's from country to country and continent to continent. And He's looking for followers and He's looking for us to go out and build it and bring people in. Because I do believe it won't be long This one's going to pass away. This one's going to pass away. So my question for you today is: Are you part of the kingdom? All you have to do is come and say, "God, have mercy on me, a sinner." In that heart, and know and recognize who you recognize your brokenness before a perfect and righteous God, and ask Him to forgive you, and He welcomes you in to the kingdom of God. I'm going to ask everyone: If everyone, every head bowed, every eye closed. If there's one here this morning, you've never done that. God's dealing with you. See, I believe the Holy Spirit deals. He's the one who deals. I don't. I've just just called out a call and a challenge. If something's happening in your heart right now, you feel something tugging at it, you come up to the altar. We let our American pride keep us from receiving what God has for us. You come up to the altar. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with something, you say, I just need somebody to pray with me, come to the altar. We've got people here who know how to pray. They'll come, stand beside you, find out what you need, and pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the hope that I have in you and the promises that I have in you. I thank you, God, that this, this world is not all there is. As good as it is sometimes, it's also sometimes very, very bad. We don't have to look; turn the news on every day and see the, see the result of sin. We see it in mass shootings. We see it in wildfires. We see it in persecutions. We see it in poverty. We see it, we see it everywhere. And we see it in death. But, God, I can look at all that, and I can look at it through the lens of your kingdom. And I have hope and peace. Yeah, it bothers me. But I have hope and I have peace. And it also encouraged me and challenged me to get out and say to my friends and my loved ones, do you know the Lord? Is all your hope over there because you know where that ends. So, Lord, I thank you for your example. I thank you for this earthly kingdom. I thank you for the leaders you've put in place here, and we're going to pray for them. But mostly I thank you for your heavenly kingdom. And I thank you for what you've done to make it where we could come to you and have fellowship with you. We thank you for the day, Lord. Lord, we pray over the memorial service. God, for Gilda's family. Lord, they're, they're experiencing what, what happens at the end of this earthly kingdom. But, Lord, they will rejoice because there's a heavenly kingdom. And so I thank you for your presence here. And I ask, Lord, God, that if there's one here, if there's one here maybe who, who, who just where they sat, you dealt with them. God, that they, they will... They will build on that. They'll come back. They'll get your word. And God, they'll, they'll begin to grow in who you are. So we thank you for your presence. We ask your blessing on the memorial service and on each person here as we go. In Jesus' name, Amen.